So yeah, it's kind of kind of neat to meet in a little bit of American history and get together in the great state of Texas, which I hope will hurry up and secede from the Union. Because as soon as they secede from the Union, I'm moving here. And they may not let me in, that's true. Well, I'll sneak in. I'll come across the border in New Mexico. Um, so these notes are part of the notes that I did for the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Obviously, I'm not going to read from the notes. You can do that. There are, there's a trainload of references in here. Um, I often hope and pray that when people get the notes, they'll go through and look up the references because the references are actually a commentary on the text. And the best commentary on the Bible is obviously the Bible. So when you have the right connections and the right cross-references, it answers a lot of the questions that come up. So what we're going to do, we're going to do a double session this morning and a double session tomorrow morning. Um, tomorrow, the second session, Fassel's going to take and teach. I'm not sure what he's going to do. Uh, we'll let the Spirit lead him on that. As I said, I'm not going to read the notes to you. We're going to just look at this little epistle, which is really, really powerful, the book of Titus. So it is... 9.30, we're going to go to about, say, 10.15, and then we'll take a break, um, and then come back and finish up the second session, and we'll be able to finish the book by tomorrow. <coughs> and then uh, we've got our uh, afternoon field trip starting at noon, so we'll, we'll get together for that. All right. Well, if you'll join me in prayer, <coughs> I think it's very important for us to just take a few moments as we open to reflect on where we are. You know, sometimes I notice when we're traveling all the time, you're moving from place to place, you kind of get disjointed and disoriented, you're out of your normal routine, you're not doing your, your typical daily things, and it's very easy to get distracted. As a matter of fact, one of the toughest battles that I fight going from place to place to place all the time is not getting distracted by changing circumstances, different groups, you know, just staying centered in the Word. So let's take a moment of silence as we prepare ourselves and examine ourselves and uh, certainly utilizing the provision of confession if necessary and otherwise thinking about those around us and praying for their life, their needs, praying that the Spirit will meet those needs as well. So join me in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is for us to gather together with uh, friends, fellow believers, and fellow soldiers. Uh, people that we have gone to battle with, people that we have prayed for, uh, people that we have shared wise counsel, people who have shared wise counsel with us. What a marvelous thing it is to be a part of your royal army and to be on the battlefield together, to patch each other up, to guard each other's back, to take hard knocks, for one another and sometimes from one another and just to find ourselves here with your word open before us in a nation that is rapidly disintegrating and yet father we are in a peaceful setting and we're so thankful for it we pray your blessing on your word we ask that god the holy spirit would provide us with the illumination and the insight that we need so that we can gain valuable things from your word this morning. With each and every one of us that is here, there are different, <clears throat> different needs, different areas uh, that need to be addressed, and we know that God the Holy Spirit is the only one who can do that. So 
open our eyes and strengthen our souls and conform us more and more to the image of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. So as I mentioned, Titus is one of the prison epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Very, very important epistles as to the leadership of the local church and also the operation of the local church. Each of the epistles was obviously written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to meet different needs. We have the pastoral epistles, we have the prison epistles. The prison epistles obviously are very different. Much of the information is going to cross over. <clears throat> Much of it's going to complement uh, that which is in other uh, bodies of scripture. Uh, we have the general epistles with James and First and Second Peter and uh, Hebrews and Jude and so forth. We've got the book of Revelation, which is unique in that it's really the only New Testament epistle that is prophetic in order. Uh, obviously, much of the Old Testament is prophetic. So as we focus in here, it, it helps us to understand what it is that we're approaching. We're approaching an epistle where Paul is addressing leadership, but he doesn't just address leadership, he addresses leadership in relation to the members of the body of Christ. And so he obviously covers a pretty wide field of information. <clears throat> One of the things, there are, there are several things that stand out in Titus, some parallel First and Second Timothy, um, but one of the things that's very unique about this epistle is that there is a summary of the gospel in each chapter. There are three summaries of the gospel. And I'll just quickly give you those three summaries, and we're going to hit them as we go along. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Chapter 1 through 1, verses 1 through 4. And this primarily has to do in dealing with the issue of authority. So we've got a summary of the gospel, but it's dealing with the issue of authority. And then in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And the issue here is going to relate more to conduct. So first we have authority, obviously, as a pastoral epistle, authority would be an important issue. The reason that God places people in authority in the local church is so that they can instruct the people in such a way that it will affect their conduct. So chapter 2 picks up on the conduct. And then we have chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. And this has to do more with witness. So authority, conduct, and witness. And we'll hit each of those as we go along because I thought a good way for us to approach the book, obviously it could take months to delve into the book and mine from the book everything that we could learn when we're in a setting like this and we just have a brief opportunity, you can read through the book in five minutes or less um, to, to really gain everything that's in the book takes a lot of time. Uh, the notes that you have, uh, I, I always am sort of semi-frustrated because I spend hours and hours and hours on these notes. <clears throat> uh, I don't know why I drive myself like this. We came back from where was it? We came back from Australia the first time, and I set the goal in my mind, in the month of December, I'm going to do the pastoral epistles. And so through December, while people are celebrating and having, you know, holidays and this and that, I'm beating my brains out in First and Second Timothy and Titus. And yet I always kind of uh, end up rebuking myself or berating myself because when I sit down and go back through my notes, I go, man, I should have covered this and I should have amplified that and I could have added this and so on and so forth. And I suppose everyone that's ever done a commentary on the Bible 
probably does that as well. But the hope is that there's enough in the notes to benefit you in some way. We're going to approach the book in a little bit more of a unique way. We're going to look at the chapter in light of the gospel summary. So the gospel summary is basically the heart of the chapter. <clears throat> and the idea that I want you to get from this is very important. In the gospel, you might even want to write this down somewhere. It'll, it'll probably be a, a quote being used a thousand years from now. In the gospel, rightly understood, is the foundation of all biblical doctrine. In the gospel, rightly understood, and you could even say fully expounded, we have the foundation, the elements of everything that is revealed in Scripture. And you'll see that a little bit as we go into it this morning. Again, we can only touch on a little bit, a small portion. But why is this so important? Well, first of all, it's important because wrong gospel means wrong doctrine. If you have a wrong perception of the gospel message, you are going to be off doctrinally. It's inevitable. You start with a faulty foundation, you're going to end up with a faulty building. If you start in a direction and you're off, you're reading your compass, but you haven't taken into consideration declination, you're going to end up a long way away from where you ought to be. And that is more true probably in the study of Scripture than anywhere else. So when you see people that are preaching a gospel that includes works for salvation, they're going to be off all over the Scripture. It's inevitable. It has to end up that way. That's where a lot of legalism comes from. Legalism comes from the fact that we have to play a part in our salvation, and therefore, as many people say, you have to keep on keeping on or you lose your salvation. Wrong gospel produces wrong theology. If you believe that God picks and chooses, he picks winners and picks losers, he picks some to go to heaven and picks the rest to go to hell, you're going to be off in all your doctrine, everywhere along the line. Or, and this is another thing that I notice when I listen to various teachers, I like to listen to and read the books and, and hear the messages of guys that I disagree with. <clears throat> and I should say people that disagree with Scripture because they're off. <clears throat> I don't by any means... I'm trying to imply there that I've got it all together because I don't. I remain open at all times to be corrected, to be shown new things. That's what teachability is all about. But you'll notice that people who are off in their understanding of God's plan and purpose for the human race are constantly having to adjust as they teach through Scripture because at some point they'll realize that they're getting led off track and so they'll readjust. And I often, Nan and I'll listen to people and I'll say, did you just catch what that guy said? And she'll go, no. And I'll go, let's play it again. And you'll always find that they're having to make adjustments in the direction that their theology is pushing them because it's obviously contrary to scripture and therefore they cannot be consistent. Um, I won't go into detail uh, beyond that, but you'll probably pick it up as you listen to people. You'll find that they're constantly having to uh, tack in one direction or another because uh, even they realize I'm, I'm getting off track here, but what they don't realize is the reason they're getting off track is because their fundamental understanding of the gospel is wrong. All right, so with that as a foundation, Let's just jump here into Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and let's see what we can pull out, and then we'll relate it to the rest of the chapter. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, 
and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested uh, his, trying to read my word, through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. I decided to teach from my study Bible, and you can see why I have trouble <laughs> reading it, because uh, I've, I've written over and, and, and covered over and made so many notes sometimes. I, I brought my big one along, a very uh, wonderful couple in my Friday night Bible class, which is a home study, uh, actually bought me this Bible, and I find it very handy because it has giant print. So maybe I'll read from it, and then I can uh, teach from uh, the other. Maybe that'll work a little better. All right, let's notice what are the elements of the gospel here. So we start out, and Paul identifies himself in two ways. First of all, as a bondservant, that is a slave, and as an apostle, that is the highest authoritative gift given in the church age. A bondservant, a slave, and an apostle. These two fit perfectly together. The more of a slave we are to Christ, the more authority we will have in our life. The only way up in God's plan is down. And therefore, in the mind of the apostle who prior to his salvation thought so highly of himself and was so highly acclaimed by other people, once he came into a right relationship with God through faith in Christ, he understood the principle. The way up in God's plan is down. If I want to have impact in the plan and the purpose of God, I'm going to have to humble myself. And that's not only humbling ourselves before God, it's humbling ourselves in relation to other people. All of us, you know, we all have rough edges. And those rough edges always create strife, conflict, or maybe nothing more than discomfort. A big test of the Christian life is how well can I put up with the rough edges of others? And how much can I become to them not a critic, not uh, an accuser? How can I become to them someone who is helping to polish those rough edges and bring them closer to conformity? To Jesus Christ. So Paul is a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Notice, according to, kata means according to the norm and the standard. So I want you to get this point. He's giving us a definition here. According to the faith of God's elect. How does one become elect? Kata, according to the standard of faith. No one is elect outside of Jesus Christ. Only those who are in Jesus Christ are elect. So election is according to faith. That is the means and the channel of entering into Christ, who, according to Isaiah 42 and verse 1, is the elect one. And it is according to the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. So here we stand. Get this idea in your mind. Here we stand on this earth, the elect of God. Why? Looking backwards because we had faith in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Looking forward, it is unto godliness. Paul defines godliness in another pastor epistle, 1 Timothy 3.16, and what is godliness? Godliness, he says, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. And he describes godliness in terms of the person of Jesus Christ. Godliness is never ours. Godliness is a gift. It's a bestowment it's an endowment as we make ourselves available to the Word of God and the Spirit of God using it in our life. So which is in accord with godliness, and we're going to see more about that in chapter 2 
what I really believe is the heart of the book is in chapter 2. And then notice, in the hope of eternal life. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. So what is hope? Hope always rests on the sure promises of God. Hope in the Bible is always absolute assurance because it rests on the promises of God and we have absolute assurance that He will fulfill His promises. Make sense? Now, a few years back we revised the basics book. And we were talking, some of us were talking about it a little bit last night. It didn't change a whole lot, but I changed some of the terminology because most people, if you throw in the word reversionism, reversionism, have no idea what you're talking about. People understand backsliding. People understand falling away. People understand becoming apathetic to the word. So I just tried to make it a little bit more user-friendly to people who had not heard the terms. But one of the things I had to change was pretty radical. And I don't know if any of you that have gotten the revised version have picked up on this. But when you get to the fifth section and it's dealing with the angelic conflict, I have completely changed my view and my position on the angelic conflict. The original idea was that Satan rebelled against God and man was created to resolve the angelic conflict. I no longer believe that. And the reason I no longer believe it is because of what Paul says right here. What does he say? He is saying that God made a promise concerning the gospel and that he promised this before time began. What does that tell us? Well, if it was before time began, there were no human beings around, were there? And if God made a promise, he had to be making a promise to somebody. Well, who was around before human beings came on the scene? Only angels. And therefore, God promised the gospel message. Well, what is the gospel message? The gospel message is the redemption. I don't think he gave them all the details, but he gave them the details of a plan to create a lesser being that he was going to redeem that would ultimately reign over the angels. And I think when Satan, as Lucifer, heard that, he said, I'm not going to stand for that. I will be the one who ascends above the clouds. I will be the one. Notice in the five I wills in Isaiah 14 that Satan declares who has those five things. Not Old Testament saints. Only church age believers have all five of those things. We have been raised above the clouds. Who are the clouds? The clouds represent the angels. We are seated with the Most High. I will set my throne in that place. And so I think when God revealed whatever he revealed about his plan, Lucifer rebelled and a third of the angels rebelled with him. And I can think of no other way to make sense out of God making a promise of the gospel message before time began. So I changed that in the basics book and the angelic conflict began not with man as an afterthought, man created to resolve a conflict that was going on ahead, but rather the conflict beginning because God revealed the plan that he was going to have for members of the human race. Something for you to think about if we disagree, it's all right. <clears throat> Notice verse 3, but has in due time manifested. Um, let me get over here. But has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. I mentioned <clears throat> that I like Titus because it has three summaries of the gospel. Each one of them is different. I also like it because... And Paul does this uh, in the Timothy epistles, but he refers to God as our Savior. God our Savior. Later on, he's going to refer to Jesus as our Savior. Who is our Savior? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each one is involved in the plan of redemption. But notice the little phrase, due time. 
Due time is important. What do we read in Galatians 4 and verse 4? In the fullness of time. In the fullness of time, Christ came. When you think about human history, you know, we often wonder, why didn't God just reveal everything he revealed to us to Moses? The answer is very simple. They weren't ready. When you look at the fall of man and you look at the effect the fall of man had on the human race, on the mind and the soul of the human race, you start with someone talking about humans. You're starting with people who have been totally devastated from their original state, from the exalted understanding that Adam and Eve had Man has now been devastated almost to the stage, you know, we think of cavemen and, you know, the, the guy walking around with a club over his shoulder. But in a sense, that's almost what happened. We went from a glorious being to a stupid, ignorant, helpless race. And therefore, God has to begin, as you would with a little infant, and start with things like, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we're in the ABCs. And then you have to raise them up, and you have to give them what we know as progressive revelation, getting more and more clear, more and more accurate, more and more illumination, if you want to put it that way. And at the same time that the revelation is growing greater and greater and greater through Scripture, there's a process of narrowing down. Because everything comes down to the cross. So you start with the whole human race, and then you pick a group called Israel, and then out of Israel you pick a tribe called Judah, and then out of the tribe of Judah you pick David, and then from David you come down to Joseph and Mary, and lo and behold, Emmanuel is born. So it's really an absolutely brilliant plan that God has as he develops the human race and leads us into greater and greater understanding until in the fullness of time, Christ comes, lives a perfect life, is rejected, scorned, maligned, attacked, ultimately crucified, buried, resurrected, and then bang. The new covenant comes into play. The new covenant, I believe, and I pointed this out in our conference over the weekend up in uh, Arkansas, that the new covenant is uh, promised in the Old Testament, but I think it's that, that thing that uh, Peter talks about in the first chapter of Peter when he said that the prophets would write things down and then they would go, how in the world is this going to happen? What all is this going to include? What, what in the world does all of this mean? And they would study their own writings because to them, living under the conditions of the law, to have a promise that the Holy Spirit would be placed within every single believer and there would be no need to say to every believer, you should know the Lord because they would all know the Lord. We, we know this as a fact, don't we? Every person who's come to faith in Christ knows the Lord. We don't, we don't tell them, we tell the unbelieving world. You need to know Christ. But the people of God, no longer like Israel, where they're all trying to get each other to come into the faith, we're a body and a family of people who know the Lord, have the Spirit of God dwelling within us, have the completed canon of Scripture before us, and I'll tell you the tragedy is how little we take advantage of what we have. We use such a small fraction of what God has given to us. And that's why we should always be pursuing, you know, if I, I wish I could live a couple hundred years. I wish I could live the way they lived in the early days of the story of humanity. If I had 900 years, if I had 600 years, what could I know in that time studying the scripture and I would still be learning new things. And if I wrote a commentary after 1600 years, I would still sit down and look at it and go, man, I didn't even scratch the surface. It's an absolutely amazing plan when you stop and think about it. I might have to hurry or we're not gonna get through this 
book. All right, verse 4, to Titus, <clears throat> a true son in the faith. Notice that he says our common faith. Uh, Peter uses the term, I think, in 2 Peter, uh, a like faith, those who have received a like faith with us. It's common to us all. It's a common possession. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. And the thing I find interesting about this uh, introduction is the inclusion of the word mercy. Paul's common greeting is grace and peace. We know that grace and peace were a combination of the Hebrew and the Greek greeting. <clears throat> the, Greek, the Hebrew greeting was shalom. You go to Israel, everybody learns at least one Hebrew word, shalom, peace. The Greeks would greet each other with the word haris, grace. Paul combines the two, grace and peace, but only in the pastoral epistles does he include the word mercy. And I find that very interesting. I find it interesting that in the writing of the book of Romans, the role that mercy plays in Romans. You're all familiar with Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living <clears throat> sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. What he's saying there is, if not for the mercies of God, you would never be able to do it. And we distinguish between grace and mercy by understanding that grace supplies everything that we don't deserve, while mercy withholds from us everything that we do deserve. Why then would Paul, in Romans chapter 12, challenge us by the mercies of God and not the grace of God? Well, because the grace of God has already been provided for us fully through His Word and through everything that's been given to us in salvation. But the one thing that is always at work is the mercy of God. If not for the mercy of God, every one of us would be a smoking cinder this morning. And just a little bit of addition there since I've diverted to Romans chapter 12. Where does mercy first occur in the book of Romans? Have you ever looked that up? Romans is a very systematic book. I'm going to te be teaching Romans in the Alabama conference. Pastor Josh said, oh, that'll be great. We have a guy who's an expert on the book of Romans coming. <laughs> that should be interesting. He said he spent his whole life studying the book of Romans. Outstanding. Sorry? No, 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 no. He's talking about a different guy. So it'll be interesting. We'll see if we agree. Have you ever noticed that the word mercy never occurs in Romans until Romans 9? Have you ever noticed that the word mercy is used nine times from Romans 9, 10, and 11? How important those three chapters that we have often referred to as a parenthesis when they're not the parenthesis at all. Paul has finally built us up from chapter 1 through condemnation through chapter 4 and 5 through justification through chapter 6 through 8 sanctification and then bang he throws down in front of us a living example of what can happen to the people of God as the nation of Israel, gifted with all of their marvelous privileges, has fallen away from Christ, from the truth, from the Word of God, and is about to be set aside on the stage of history because of their unbelief, and yet he mentions the mercy of God that one day, and I believe that day is coming very soon, it's very close, one day God is going to regather them and open their eyes and bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Why in the world would he put up with a people like Israel? Why in the world when Jesus rebuked them with the most awful rebuke found in the Bible in Matthew 23 as seven times he pronounces a woe against them. One woe from the lips of Christ should terrify a nation he pronounces seven woes 
on the nation of Israel as to what is about to happen to them because of their rejection of Christ and calls them hypocrites. By the way, if you really want to, uh, what's the word that I should use? I don't want to use the word curse. Uh, if you really want to identify something horrible in a person, call them a hypocrite. Because that's the worst, worst word from a spiritual point of view that you can use. Hypocrite. A pretender. A fake. A phony. All right, so we have grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. Notice God our Savior up there in verse 3. Jesus Christ our Savior in verse 4. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to take the elements of what we've seen in this gospel summary and very quickly run us through how they apply to the spiritual leadership. So this is going to be kind of a running commentary. Verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I command you. Things in a local church should be orderly. Chaos is the environment of the enemy. Satan loves chaos, confusion, and division. God works to bring things into order. Out of chaos, God brings order. That's what happened in the original creation. And the way to bring order in the local church is to have elders in every city. Now from this, people get the idea of multiple elders. Uh, I don't mind a church having multiple elders as long as they realize that one guy's in charge. When you have an eldership where it's a shared responsibility, you have five elders and everyone is of equal standing, they say, well, he's the first among equals. I would tell you what I think of that, but it wouldn't be fitting to put on the tape. How can you be the first among equals if you're first, you're not equals, and if you're equals, no one's first? Who's in charge? When you have five guys that all have equal responsibility, equal, respons uh, equal authority, you have chaos. Some, some churches I know that have this kind of a system will not do anything unless they all agree. You know what? All Satan's got to do is get one guy with a bad attitude, he's having a bad experience in his life, he's distracted or whatever, and the whole church falls to shambles. You have to have a leader. There's got to be a shepherd. You don't have five shepherds over the flock. You have one shepherd. He may have many helpers, that's fine. Somebody has to make the decision. It's just like a military situation. You have many, many different layers of ranks and different layers of authority, but somewhere along the line, someone has to make the decision. So an elder in every church, in every city, I believe is the idea here. That's the only way to put things in order. If a man is blameless, now he goes into the qualifications and your notes break this down Sometimes there are five positive, five negative, six negative, six positives. I'm not going to deal with all that. I just want to hit the highlights. If a man is blameless, the word blameless does not mean sinless. It means no accusation can be brought against him. In other words, he is living his life in such a way that if he falls down, he gets back up. If he gets dirty, he, you know, takes a bath. He has his rough edges like all of us have rough edges, but no one is able to bring a credible charge against him. The husband of one wife, this does not refer, I believe, to the fact that he may have been divorced. I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue is that he is devoted to his wife. He is, as the saying goes, a one-woman man. The husband of one wife having faithful children. A better translation would be believing children. Having believing children. Now what happens 
If a pastor has children that don't believe, well, they've got volition too. But the goal is that he is a spiritual leader in his home. He labors to win his children to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I know pastors who don't do this and they don't do it because if God chose them, they'll believe. If God didn't choose them, they won't believe. No, he's got believing children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. In other words, his kids are not alcoholics and they're not rebels. For a bishop, he changes the word here, and as we pointed out in our study uh, in, uh, over the weekend in 1 Peter, the words elder, bishop, and shepherd all refer to the same guy. Go back to Acts tw uh, chapter 20. <clears throat> You'll see all three terms used for the same people. Paul called the elders of the church of Ephesus. He calls them bishops. He tells them to shepherd the flock. Why do we use three terms? They have three different emphases, if you will. Elder refers to authority. He is the ultimate authority in the local church. Overseer, we would translate it supervisor or superintendent. He's the one who is making sure that people line up, measure up, do what they need to do. He's supervising. He's guiding. He's directing. Shepherd obviously pictures the tender care of the shepherd, the protection of the flock, the feeding of the flock is his responsibility. So the shepherd will be very compassionate, merciful, and understanding, but sometimes he has to put on that overseer hat and say, hey, you're not measuring up, and he's a mentor. He's going to push you a little bit. He's going to apply a little bit of pressure. A bishop must not be blameless as a steward of God. Remember that the word steward was the highest servant or the highest slave in a household, so it's a, it's a term of respect. As a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent. I think some translations may be the old King James, not a striker. In other words, he doesn't just punch out everybody that disagrees with him. Not greedy for money. So there are the negatives. That's what he should not be. But he should be hospitable, that is, receptive to people in need. A lover of what is good. Remember Paul tells us in Philippians 4, 8, whatever things are good, think on these things. Sober-minded, in other words, serious about his responsibilities. Just, fair, holy. We tend to think of holy always in terms of not sinning, which immediately gets us off on the wrong foot. We should be thinking of the term holy in the sense of devoted, dedicated, committed. If we're devoted enough to God, we're not going to have to battle our sin. I told people in Arkansas, I think this is one of the biggest areas of confusion, particularly for young believers. They get the idea, I've got to battle against sin. I've got to fight against the devil. And they're always losing. And they're always losing because you're not strong enough. You're not smart enough. You're not capable to win the battle against sin in your life. But... If we devote ourselves to what we're supposed to be doing, if we're saturating our soul with the Word, if we're in Bible class, if we're fellowshipping with other believers, if we're involved in some area of ministry, guess what? You don't have time to worry about getting involved in all the other stuff. You basically have replaced it. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful Word. In other words, he is a student of the Word of God, and he holds it fast as a precious treasure. It is something he is not going to let go of. Holding fast the faithful Word as he's been taught, that he may be able, capable, skillful, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. One of the big battles of every shepherd is always false teaching whether it creeps into the church where he's the pastor or whether he's meeting it on the street 
or whether he's dealing with it in Bible college where he's learning different viewpoints, different perspectives, we have to learn to discern between this is true and this is false. And that takes a long time. I mean, it's a lifelong pursuit, really. It'll never end. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers. In other words, they're just running their gums. They're talking about things they don't understand. Or they knowingly and willingly are deceiving people, especially those of the circumcision. And these are the ones that we call uh, the uh, Jewish zealots. The Jewish selves, the legalists, the Judaizers. Many of them believed in Christ, but they wanted to bring in all the baggage of the law of Moses. And we have this today in our churches. They're insubordinate, rebellious. Their mouths must be stopped. The idea here is putting a muzzle on a dog that bites or putting a muzzle on a horse that's rebellious or whatever. Their mouth must be stopped. They subvert whole households. The household here I take to be the house church. Uh, well, I'll let that one pass. I always have to remember I'm being recorded. False teachers love to creep into ministries that have started, something's happening, people are excited, people are coming and they're learning the word and they hear this and they love to insert themselves in there and at the right moment they'll start presenting themselves, little side conversations here, little things that they can pull a person aside, well, you know, I don't completely agree with him on this and their whole goal is to completely upset that whole household and ultimately to take over. A smart pastor can spot it and knows how to deal with it. They subvert households teaching things they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Whether the dishonest gain is financial or in the form of reputation, it doesn't really matter. They want to gain something they have no right to. They want to gain a reputation. They want to gain a following. They want to gain a position of power. They want people looking at them. They want people listening to them. And they have no right to that. One of them, verse 12, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. What a reputation. Notice that Paul says, this testimony is true. The Cretans were known for these three things. They were known for being deceptive. They were known for being destructive. And they were known for being greedy. So here's Titus sent by Paul to this island, which by the way, the island of Crete. If you study the book, which I told all of you to read, Natural Born Heroes, it's on the island of Crete. World War II, the destiny of World War II was decided on the island of Crete. And most people know nothing about it, even historians. The whole tide was turned on that little island by these people. But they were people that were stirred to their very best and hopefully still many believers among them. So he says this testimony is true. By the way, the quote is from Epimenides. Paul quotes three of the Greek philosophers in his writings. You want to write them down? In Acts 17, verse 28, he quotes Aratus. A-R-A-T-U-S. Aratus. In 1 Corinthians 15.33, he quotes Menander, M-E-N-A-N-D-E-R, Menander. And here in Titus, he quotes Epimenides, and you might remember him. He was a 6th century poet and philosopher, 6th century B.C., that is. And when Paul found himself in Acts 17 in Athens, and he stopped 
and he pointed among all of the thousands of monuments of worship that were there, he finds and points to the one that is a monument to the unknown God. And that monument was erected at the direction of Epimenides. Paul was highly educated and knew his history. He says, this testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply. When you rebuke sharply, it cuts. There are times when the truth needs to be used like a sword. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. The goal is not to destroy them, even the false teachers, even the liars, even the deceivers. The goal is not to destroy them. The goal is to restore them to a healthy faith. Not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Verse 15 says, to the pure, all things are pure. What a wonderful thing when you can have such a pure heart that you look at everything in the world that God has created and see that it has a right use and reject the wrong use. Everything that God has created, everything that God has put here, everything that is a part of human life has a right use. The pure heart sees that. Obviously, the perverted do not. Those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Even their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. I said earlier, if you really want to insult someone, call them a hypocrite. If you really want to get under their skin, call them abominable. <laughs> that word in the original means something that is absolutely disgusting. Something that is completely repulsive, abominable. What do we see in all of these qualifications? We see the ingredients of verses 1 through 4. Everything that the gospel is, it is all about Jesus Christ. It is a gift from God. It is something that brings us into the faith. It obviously, as we remain and grow in the faith, is going to bring us to godliness that is, Christ-likeness, conformity to Christ. And always out there before us is that hope of eternal life and the hope of eternal reward. So that is Titus chapter 1 in a very small nutshell. But we're going to stop here and we're going to take a break and then we'll come back about, I guess, 11, eh, no, Let's, let's try to start about quarter till, ten till. That'll get us enough time so we can get out because we don't want to miss the bus. Right? Never miss the bus. Whatever happens, don't miss the bus.